Well, we're here to talk about a movie, It's a Wonderful Life. I take it some of you heard of it. Um, but uh, it comes on a few times during the Christmas season every year. Unfortunately, we seem to have got the Taylor Swift version. So it, it's, I think something's wrong with the, this projector, so it's, um, it's a little pink, but we should be able to see it. Um, but has everyone seen the movie before? Yes. Okay. Anyone not seen the movie? Um, well, it's one, I, I didn't see it for a long time. My first remembrance of it was, if you remember Christmas Vacation, when they're all laying on the couch, and they have the scene on, every time a bell rings, the angel gets its wings. And I think that's, that colors a lot of people's view of it. I, I mean, I, I think some people might see it as corny. Um, through the whole angel gets its wing, get his wings um, side of the story, um, the everyone is no one is a failure who has friends. Um, but but I loved the movie the first time I saw it. I think I saw it in college. I watched it every year since then, um, and, <coughs> and um, hadn't put a lot of thought into it until I came across an article. Um, I think it was 2008. It was an article in the New York Times. Um, and that's where this title comes from. Um, but it's called, <clears throat> it's from December 19, 2008. It says, Wonderful, sorry, George, it's a pitiful, dreadful life. And so that caught me aback. And I was like, I, I mean, I know there's some sad parts to the film, but I really had never looked at, like, looked at it like that. But if you. <laughs> If you read the article, it's by a man called Wendell Jameson, who I don't know anything about. But here is, uh, early in the article it says, This wonderful life is a terrifying, asphyxiating story about growing up and relinquishing your dreams, of seeing your father driven to the grave before his time, of living among bitter, small-minded people. It is a story of being trapped, of compromising, of watching others move ahead in a way, of becoming so filled with rage that you verbally abuse your children, their teacher, and your oppressively per perfect wife. It's also a nightmare account of an endless home re renovation. <laughs> <laughs> so, and he also says, I plan to take my nine-year-old son and my father, who has never seen it the whole way through because he thinks it's too corny. So I think there's a lot of just popular view of, of like that. Um, but, but so... And it describes it as terrifying, asphyxiating. And, it, and then it turns out, I looked into it a little bit more, and there are a lot of other um, articles that have similar accounts. This is from Salon.com, Rich Cohen. It's a Wonderful Life, the most terrifying movie ever. If you were to cut It's a Wonderful Life by 20 minutes, its true subject would be revealed. In this shortened version, George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart, forever on the edge of hysteria, after being betrayed by nearly everyone in his life, after being broken on the wheel of capitalism, flees to the outskirts of town, Bedford, Fa Bedford Falls, New York, where he leaps off a bridge with thoughts of suicide. And here's another one, the last one. Um, this is from the AV Club. This venerable holiday classic isn't as heartwarming and life-affirming as its joyous ending insists, but rather one of the grimmest, most despairing portraits of middle-class compromise ever produced by Hollywood. So, you know, it doesn't sound like your heartwarming um, Christmas story, but at the same time, it's, I mean, it's a beloved movie, 
you know, it com I think it still comes to the Alabama theater every year. I mean, it, I think NBC shows it 15 times during the holiday season. Um, it used to, I mean, I, I remember growing up, it would be on, and, and I never watched it, but it was on constantly until NBC got the rights. Um, so, so what is the um, kind of conflict between these descriptions of it and, and its belovedness, or, or how do those play in together? Um, so what we could do is basically just watch the film, but we're going to watch a few clips and talk about it. And if you have any thoughts, or uh, then um, please feel free to express some questions, comments. I mean, your, your observations. Um, this is actually oops, um, a two-part class. Um, this part is going to be on um, George Bailey, his life, his story, what happens to him, you know, the things that drive him. The next part is going to be on Pottersville and Bedford Falls and kind of the differences and in, 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 um, which leads to each place. This may be a controversial statement, but I would say this is the best Hollywood movie ever that starts with talking galaxies. <laughs> Okay. Hello, Joseph. Trouble? Looks like we'll have to send someone down. A lot of people asking for help for a man named George Bailey. George Bailey? Yes, tonight's his crucial night, you're right. We'll have to send someone down immediately. Whose turn is it? That's why I came to see you, sir. It's that clockmaker's turn again. Oh, Clarence hasn't got his wings yet, has he? We passed him up right along. Because, you know, sir, he's got the IQ of a rabbit. Yes, but he's got the faith of a child. Simple. Joseph, send for Clarence. You sent for me, sir? Yes, Clarence. A man down on Earth needs our help. Splendid. Is he sick? No, worse. He's discouraged. At exactly 10.45 p.m. Earth time, that man will be thinking seriously of throwing away God's greatest gift. Oh, dear. Um... <clears throat> and I just showed that part. It, it starts with the proper context. Um, you know, it, it, so it's starting from a heavenly perspective. It makes the point, this is George Bailey's crucial night. Um, I think soon after that, Joseph, who's one of the galaxies, says, um, you know, as he's starting to recount the story, he says, poor George. Um, and, and so it's, it, it has a benevolent... Uh, it's, it's hard, I think, whether that's Jesus or God or whoever it is talking, and along with Joseph, we've got a benevolent creator, a benevolent God to begin with. Um, and if, if you look at those articles talking about taking away the first five and last 20 minutes of it, well, that's a critical part of the story and where it goes from there. Um, but if you remember, um, the background of the movie is about the Bailey building and loan. And George Bailey's father, Peter Bailey, <coughs> started the building and loan and, and used it to help um, give loans and, and low-cost loans to a lot of the, the people in the town. Um, you know, there's no... And one thing, I mean, they, they, I see a lot of commentaries that mention, well, is this capitalist, is it socialist? Well, really, it doesn't mention anything about the government whatsoever. So... I mean, it's in a capitalist environment, but George, there's no indication that this is a government institution. It's the Bailey Business and Loan. 
Um, but he, <coughs> Peter Rayleigh's prota um, protagonist, I mean, um, antagonist is um, Henry Potter, who's a very Ebenezer Scrooge-like character. Um, greedy, wants everything, takes everything he can, and which leads us to this next scene. Okay, so what, what's happened here, this is on the night of his brother's, who's four years younger than his high school graduation. So George, um, because his, um, his, his father, because of the way he runs the, the Bailey business and loan, wasn't able to send him to college. All George's um, friends went off to college. George stayed and worked at the Bailey building and loan. The agreement would be when Harry graduated, he would go work there, and then George would go off to college. Um, but so... George, he, he talks about building things, he talks about getting out, but really, I mean, it seems to me he's, he's developing what he wants to do and what his visions are in contrast to his father's existence. And he sees his father um, scrounging over pennies and, and dealing with potter and, you know, not being able to, to do the things he wants to do. So George wants to do something important. He wants to go out to build bridges, to, to, to design buildings. Um, and he, he keeps on saying that throughout the movie. But so his, you know, whether consciously or subconsciously, he seems to be designing his dreams and his hopes um, in contrast to what he's experienced growing up. 
um, and he, he, he thinks he's got it all figured out, as we, as a lot of us at, at that age do. This, um, so this is later that night um, when he runs into some, uh, he's leaving the high school graduation. There's no place for any. His heart was lumbering down the street, down the street, down the street. Okay, then I'll throw her off the old Granville house. Oh, no, 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 I'm not that old house. No, you see, you make a wish and then try and break some glass and you've got to be a pretty good shot nowadays, too. Oh, no, George, don't. It's full of romance, that old place. I'd like to live in it. In that place? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't live in as a ghost. Now watch, it's right in the second floor there, see? What'd you wish, George? Well, not just one wish, a whole hat full. Mary, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow, and the next day, and next year, and the year after that. I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town <coughs> off my feet, and I'm going to see the world. Italy, Greece, the Parthenon, the Colosseum. Then I'm coming back here and go to college to see what they know. And then I'm going to build things. I'm going to build airfields. I'm going to build skyscrapers a hundred stories high. I'm going to build bridges a mile long. Were you going to throw her up? Hey, that's pretty good. What'd you... So he's going to build bridges a mile long, buildings a uh, hundred stories high. He's got it all figured out. He knows exactly what he's going to do today, the next day, and, and every day from there on. I mean, and, you know, it's, like I said earlier, um, we often feel that way, and it's natural. We've got our own world. We want to control our circumstances. We think we can, you know, well, I'm going to work this long, I'm going to get this promotion, um, then I'm going to go on my own, I'm going to do this, I'm, and, or, or, or in another sense, um, you know, we're, we'll get married, we'll work for a few years, we'll have a baby, um, then the wife will go back for a couple years and work, then have another baby, work, work for a couple years. Get, so you, we think that we can plan everything and um, to protect us and <coughs> In, in such a way that's going to um, be a, a pleasing outcome um, and or, or planning for retirement. But often things happen and things beyond our control or within our control um, cause us to take a different path. Um, and and as those of you, well, everybody's seen the movie, that, that's what happened to George. And most of what Clarence is being recounted to is before he comes down to visit George, there's kind of the setback he has, setback after setback. So in this scene, Peter Bailey dies, um, and George Bailey is, is forced, to, well, he's not forced, but he, um, the building alone is either going to go to Potter, um, or George has got to be, is take over the building alone. So out of obligation, he, he takes on, he, he becomes president of the building alone, so it can't go to Potter. Um, and then, so, Harry goes to college for four years. Harry comes back, um, but he's married and has a job elsewhere, so George continues on at the building alone. And one thing after another, and he's, um, he never leaves Bedford Falls. Um, and this is, I might have jumped a little bit ahead of myself. But he starts to realize... 
that his ideas about things and his ability to do what he wants to do is slipping away. This is when he learns that his, um, his brother has another job after he's just married. Oops. He says he doesn't want to get married to anyone, and then cue <laughs> wedding bells. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> but so <clears throat> he he realizes that um, you know, what he wants to do, um, his his the control he had over his future is slipping away, um, and. His desire to escape Bedford Falls, um, he, he becomes stuck there, and he has opportunities. Like Sam Wainwright, who's, who's his friend, offers him a job, but for whatever reason, he's unable to leave. He he um, he refuses the job that would have given him a high salary. He he becomes bound to the building and loan. Um, although he didn't want to be there, um, or. That, that's not his plan to be there. He feels obligated to, and that made me think of a um, couple of verses in, in Galatians, Galatians 5:17. <clears throat> For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So really, it seems that he's operating under two different. Um, he's operating under the obligation of what he of upholding his father's Bailey ideals in the Bailey business and loan, and in contrast, he's looking for the things he wants to do, which is a form of escaping that same thing. And those are in contrast, in conflict with, with each other, and that I think that what leads him to be bound. And so he he can't. Those things are acting against each other, and he, he, he can't make any decision as to what he wants to do. Um, but his, his desire to do those things and to escape continues. And, and so you see, as time goes on, um, it builds up with him, and he starts just trudging about his life on a day-to-day -day basis. They get, and if you remember, they get married, they're going on a honeymoon, and then 
when, as they're going on the honeymoon, the depression begins, and he has to go save the bank and give all his honeymoon money, and they never make it on the honeymoon. <laughs> That's the same thing with all the movies we like. <laughs> So night after night, he comes down late from the office. Potter's bearing down hard. Um, you know, he, as, as we'll see in a later scene, he's, he's got his models of buildings and bridges that he builds up. So he's, he's taken those, those goals and dreams he had, and he's put them in models in the corner of the, of the den. Um, <coughs> and so, I mean, he's got blinders on. He's stuck. Um, he's not doing what he wants to do, but he can't do what... what um, <clears throat> um, he's, he, he just continues to, to, to go through life and he really, from, from that scene, he's um, not really appreciating it. Um, he's not acting out of love. I mean, his acts and, and what he's doing, you know, he's helping people get houses, but it's not through his in, internal love that he's doing it. It's just what he's doing and, and out of the original obligation to his, what his father wanted. Um, and his unwillingness to let Potter take over the building and loan. Um, so really, at this point, he's hanging on by a thread. And then, as I'm sure you remember, um, his you know, crazy Uncle Billy loses $8,000, which in today's money is, I think it's like 120000 which that's a, a significant loss for the bank. Um, but um, when that happens, that takes him to the to the edge, and he, you know, what's been building up inside him, and all the frustrations and disappointments that he's had, kind of explode, first to Uncle Billy, and then to his family. Hello. Any? Uh, Dad, I don't know how Louis 
They're the buildings and bridges. Even there, I mean, he's, the, his idea of what he needs to do versus his anger that's building up or kind of reacting. So he's going back and forth between being the good father versus, you know, exploding against his, his family. Um, <clears throat> and so George, um, and I think we're, we're running low on time, so I won't show this, but if, he, he ends up at a bar um, where he runs into... Mr. Welch, Mrs. Welch's father, who he just lashed out at, who, who punches him. They, he leaves the bar. He ends up on the a, at the bar. He makes a prayer, and he says, well, "I'll show it real quick." Um, let's see. He says, "Starts it by I'm not a praying man," and so this is nothing that he's done through the whole movie. I'm playing. So he he finally turns away from himself. He turns to God, um, but it's still is somewhat of a semi-Pelagian prayer. Um, Show me the way. He still thinks he can he can make his way. He just needs a little help from God. Um, what happens after that? So he gets kicked out of the bar. He says that's that's the thanks for the prayer I get I get. And he ends up on the the bridge overlooking a very um, deep fall, long fall to a. a um, uh, very violent, uh, violent appearing lake that's with a lot of torrent that would certainly, if he jumped off, would would be suicide. Um, and then Clarence comes down, jumps in, which causes him to be saved. Um, <clears throat> so at that point, so he's still, you know, he 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 think he asks Clarence for money. I mean, he's still thinking that's the kind of help that he can get. But then it, as you know, it takes it to 
um, Pottersville, um, and we see what George would have um, what would have happened had Jordan never existed. So really, he's going through kind of a metaphorical death. Um, he's never existed. It's what happens to his family and friends in the event that he's not there, which. I think what he sees from that is the vulnerability of everything that he's missed and and what he's been doing and and he gains a new appreciation for that vulnerability as he goes through <coughs> um, you know, completely being wiped off the earth um, and only at that point in time so it, it it takes a lot of stripping away of all of his ideas of what's good and of the things he needs to do he comes to a second prayer where this is the last clip Oops. So at this point, he just he gets to, I want to live again. Just whatever happens. He says, then I'm going to jail. Hallelujah. Um, so he's completely turned himself over through I mean, Clarence acting somewhat as the Holy Spirit. Um, and at that point in time, when he acquiesces into whatever, he, he's seen the plan that God has designed for him and how that turned out versus um, how things, Pottersville, which is somewhat of the, as we'll talk about next week, is you know, Bedford Falls without grace. Um, and at that point, you know, you see a, an amazing rebirth scene as he, he goes back into his house and they, his friends come up with more money than he could have possibly imagined. Um, And that's through his, his asking to live again and acquiescence of whatever turns out and whatever, taking away the control entirely. You know, some have said that it's uh, trying to make a case for moralism out of It's a Wonderful Life. That, you know, he did what was good and he treated other people and, and was kind to other people, helped them out, and then they helped him out in the end. But really, I don't think that's accurate at all. I mean, you can make that, try to make that case, but... Um, I mean, really, George did everything he needed to do. He was always um, fulfilled his obligations, helped his neighbor, um, gave them loans even when they were struggling. Um, and at the same time, you know, his friends wouldn't have been able to come and save him had not Clarence not come because he would have jumped in, in the water and it would have been too late. Um, 
so if there's anyone who should, who um, whose works were sufficient to um, be saved, it would be George Bailey. And it kind of reminded me of a verse in Philippians um, where Paul is <coughs> talking about himself. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, <clears throat> um, that any, by any means possible I may attain resurrection from the dead. So despite his good works, he was still driven to despair on, on the brink of suicide before Clarence's intervention. Um, so I, I think it's a... <clears throat> The portrait of justification, justification by faith, and how only when he was brought to that point where he turned it over to God, at that point he was brought back to life, and the scene of his resurrection <coughs> occurs. Um, so going back to the beginning with the 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 articles saying that this is the most terrifying movie, and whereas this is a Christmas movie, I mean, I think they have a point. Um, if you're looking at this from a non-Christian perspective um, and you think that there's no possibility that when you've reached the point of despair that there's someone from heaven going to come down and, and help you, then it, you know, it is a terrifying movie and there is no hope. Um, here's a, from the um, AV Club article. Um, the expression Capricorn fails to recognize the degree to which this director's crowd-pleasing Epiphanies hinge upon the depths of utter hopelessness into which his characters first plunge. The real question is this, has the movie become a holiday classic because people don't notice how bleak and despondent it is or because they do? Um, so it is a Christmas picture and I think one of the reasons why it's so beloved is because it grasps the reality of our lives and of our need for um, <coughs> saving through faith um, and with from the Christian perspective with the first five in the last 20 minutes um, it, it, if, if we look at it we can see that there is hope um, where those who don't have that perspective see no hope um, and one of them did capture it pretty closely and this is from Rich Cohen that's the movie, The Good Man Driven and Sane. Oh no, you might say, you've missed the entire point. Following the trials of George Bailey without seeing his rescue is like hearing the story of the passion without knowing of the resurrection. It's just Jesus on the cross saying, Oh Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Followed by a star wipe and end credits. It's the power of editing. Where you start and where you finish is the whole story. And, and that, that is the whole story. It's where we start we start from the heavenly um, perspective where we have 
um, someone who looks down upon us in our crucial night and says, poor George, um, then it, we have a hopeful picture. And, and I think that is a good Christian message, I mean a Christmas message, because um, linked with every birth is, is a death. And, and through the birth that George experiences, he first had to go to death, uh, to go to his death. Um, metaphorically speaking, so that he could um, be reborn. Um, and at some point we all face um, circumstances like that. Um, so I, I find it a very you know, reassuring movie and it, it's something I enjoy watching every Christmas. But any thoughts, questions, other observations, disagreements? What? Okay, we're running low on time. But like I said, this was supposed to be a, a two-part class. We talked about George Bailey today. Um, next week, it's going to be more focused on, you know, what what does Pottersville say about us? What is Bedford Falls? How did Bedford Falls come about? Which is be- I mean, some of the articles discuss which would you rather be in. So we'll talk about that some if you want to come back. All right.